Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. From starting his reporting career in the working-class suburbs of Newcastle to making his way over to the wild west coast, Tony Barris has worked as a journo all over this wide brown land. The longtime newspaper man is now a stalwart of the West Australian media landscape, having won many awards for his writing on a range of mastheads and rounds. Tony has just made the jump from journalism to become the senior media advisor to the leader of the WA opposition, Lisa Harvey. He was tested far more than many journos early in his career when he was jailed for a week for contempt of court. He was also fined $10,000 for refusing to reveal the source of his report on malpractice in the Perth tax office. He has no regrets, saying it was the only honourable thing to do in the circumstances, although he feels deeply for those journos now put in similar dilemmas. His experiences then have again come to the fore 30 years later as the merits of press freedom in Australia return to the spotlight of public debate. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project today. My pleasure, Nance. Great to see you in the West. Here we are in Perth at Parliament House, so just in the very salubrious surroundings. This is quite a, a new endeavour for you. Tony, can you tell us a bit about what's brought you here? Well, about four months or so ago, Lisa Harvey, who uh, was the, our local member in Scarborough, took over the leadership of the West Australian Liberal Party and she brought in a, a, a new team and asked me to come and join her and I'd been working uh, at the Sunday Times, Seven West Media for a while and before that in various other newspapers over a long career and I thought, well, it'd be good to, to um, have a bit of a change of scenery. There was 18 months left to the election uh, and I thought, well, it'd be good fun just to get on the other side and sort of see how... Well, I mean, I understand how the how government works, but just to see the in, and get an insider's view on the uh, triumphs and tragedies of um, opposition. So uh, it's it's so I've joined her as a sort of a senior advisor in brackets media. So and uh, it's quite a well-worn path, of course. People may not realise between journalism and and that advisory kind of role. So yeah, um, congratulations on your appointment. Yeah, thanks. It's and it's it's actually interesting because there are a lot of parallels. I, fa- I find that. Politics is probably a bit like, especially the people who are involved in it, a bit like journalism was about 20 years ago. There's lots of sort of crazy people everywhere, so which is highly entertaining. Um, um, but as a, from a management point of view, it can be very predictable, but it keeps you on your toes, so that's good. And congratulations as well for your most recent award. I've been looking at the 2018 Arthur Lovkin Prize for Excellence in Journalism, Tony. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was... Um, that was the end of uh, end of last year, so uh, I was quite chuffed. That's the uh, sort of the main journalism prize here in the West, um, put out by UWA. So yeah, no, it was it was, it was great. Sounds like it was quite 
a traumatic story in itself to cover, Tony. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. And you were commended for the meticulous forensic work that you did on this cold case, the McCusker's bid to clear the child killer. Quite a well-known case of Sharon Mason, who was killed as a schoolchild many years ago. Yeah, this was back in 1983, and a schoolgirl went missing in Mosman Park, one of the more sort of uh, greeny, sort of leafy suburbs of the western, uh, near the beach over in Perth. And she was disappeared and then her body was found some years later and uh, a man was arrested, a fellow called uh, Arthur Greer, Paddy Greer, and he was eventually convicted of a murder but there were so many issues at heart that raised so many suspicions and... uh, of course, with so many the DNA now coming into its own, um, a lot of these cold cases are now coming before, back before the courts, and this was one of them where one of our most prominent QCs and a former governor, Malcolm McCusker, decided to get in and, and start uh, digging around on behalf of, of Greer. And we managed just to find a letter, a correspondence between Mr McCusker and Arthur Greer, who by this stage had spent many, many, many years in jail. And, uh, of course, that kick-started a story uh, or a series of stories going back into looking at this very tragic but highly questionable conviction of Greer. And that sort of led us on to a whole range of sort of archival stories with uh, you know good reads and a couple of breaking news angles to it so it was you know it was, a, it, was it rolled along pretty well really how much uh, how many months were you working on this particular case? oh over a couple of months you know oh. three or four months i suppose but uh, it, it wasn't a story that was unu- that was unknown in, in wa mm. um, but it was a story that people had forgotten about i think because Greer had been in, in prison for so long and um, and still people, he, he very much polarised um, the legal and journalistic community. People either thought he was uh, you know, very set in their ways on whether he was uh, uh, innocent or guilty. Um, he died relatively recently. He was freed at the start of this year or at the end of last year and went back to uh, London and, and sort of died within sort of three, four months of him being back in London. True. So, uh, but having said that, you know, he's a nasty. We're not talking about a, a gentle soul here who mm. was, you know, this guy had plenty of convictions. He was a he was a nasty piece of work, and I really want to make that clear. But the evidence pointing to whether he was involved in that particular crime was very, very questionable. And that's what was important to to raise and to, to make all our legal processes more rigorous by doing that, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I think there's all, there was also an element, and particularly among some sections of the media back in the day, was, oh, well, you know, if he was guilty of all these other things, well, you know, who really cares? Um, and I think that's a really poor way of, you know, running a, a justice system. If you're innocent of any crime, regardless of whether you're convicted of any others, well, you know, that should be first and foremost in trying to sort that stuff out. But, um, you know, as I say, and I want to emphasise, he was a very unpleasant man. Um, and he was um, convicted of very other nasty, not, not homicides, but convicted of other nasty crimes. But just because he was guilty of those doesn't necessarily mean that he was guilty of others. And, you know, it should be the journalist's role and also the role of, of the system to be able to decipher when, you, when you're guilty 
uh, and when you're not. And uh, if you happen to be guilty of something else, well, you know, that should be set to one side. Were you able to find out who was guilty of this crime? No, and nobody oh. ever will. And there are, you know, numerous suspects, as they, as there always uh, are in sort of these sort of matters. But no, I think it'll just go down as one of those uh, stories that inevitably fades off into history. Tony, I'm interested to know if we can go back. You've been a journalist for many years. How did you fall into this particular profession? Well, my dad was a journalist. He was a journalist for a long time at the Newcastle Herald, and he started out in Sydney. Um, he was a, uh, a cadet uh, that went through the um, police, the New South Wales Police, and was involved in a motorcycle accident and uh, broke his back. And when he did that, he became ineligible to continue. He, he wanted, always wanted to be a copper, but back in the day, part of their uh, skill set was shorthand. So the only other job that he felt comfortable in and that he could get was as a, as a newspaper reporter. So he joined uh, you know, the old AAP or AUP, I think it was back in the day, and uh, Sydney Morning Herald, and then went up to Newcastle and, became, and worked for a long, long time uh, as a crime reporter at the Newcastle Herald and in and around the Hunter Valley. And so when I finished my schooling, um, you know, that was the day of uh, nepotism was uh, loud and clear. <laughs> and um, I, he, he basically got me a job as a cadet reporter at the Illawarra Mercury in uh, Wollongong back in 1980, for God's so sake. So you started on the East Coast, Tony. Yes. Yeah. When did you make the big move? I came across here at the the end of uh, the 80s, sorry, in the mid, mid-80s. I went up to Brisbane for a couple of years and then... Uh, uh, my then girlfriend um, came across, we both came across in uh, 85, I think, I don't know, 84, 85. And um, we left, we came back, we left, we came back. Um, and, we, and then I eventually came back in 89 and uh, I've been here pretty much since about 1990. So what brought you back? Was it a job particularly or a sense of adventure? Well, the West was interesting back then because uh, we just won the America's Cup after in '83. Mm, I and remember that very well. Everybody was heading, everyone <laughs> was heading west, and um, you know it was a, it was a bit of a gold rush type uh, atmosphere. A couple of years beforehand, everyone headed up to Brisbane for the um, Commonwealth Games. <laughs> well, uh, a few years later, everyone was heading down out to uh, Perth for the uh, America's Cup, and so those years from sort of '83 to '86 were fantastic and they were wild and crazy and um, you know there was a lot of young people flooding into town politics was wild you know we had the beginnings of the sort of WA Inc we had a lot of great news stories floating around you know they even threw in a couple of serial killers just to keep everybody interested so you know it was it was the wild west rich pickings for a journey well yeah absolutely (laughs) and of course when you're do your cadetships over in the East Coast. I'm not saying you don't, it's not here, mm. but in the East Coast they train you up pretty well. So back then you could just literally walk into a job. So that, that was the way they did things. You didn't write an application, you just met the chief of staff down the pub and if he liked you, you're in. <laughs> so, well, you've obviously enjoyed journalism to have been in it for that long, Tony. What, what do you think has kept you in this game through the ups and downs? Well, I think it... I mean, I, sometimes I think think about it myself you know if you if you're good at something and I was just naturally um, you know I, I knew I could earn a living out of it uh, and it was fun you know it was it was always fun there was always a sense of ad, um, adventure and you know you got to do things that other people just didn't have the opportunity to do um, you know whether it was 
you know, there's always a lot of travel in WA, so whether it was, you know, jumping in a car and driving up the Kimberley or whether it was, you know, going fishing off the off the coast with uh, and doing picture stories on, you know, shark hunters in the of the Pilbara or because it's such a big, diverse, interesting state, you're always doing big, diverse, interesting stories. How different is it reporting here in the West, particularly because you had that perspective in the East? We hear about Queensland being such a unique little microcosm and the, with the politics up there. What's WA like? Well, you know, people who live here sort of cringe a bit when you call it the Wild West, but there is a sense of uh, that pioneering spirit here. Uh, and there always has been. There's always been a sense of um, a bit of a chip on the shoulder, perhaps, because there is a great divide. And the West, not unlike Queensland, always seems to sort of feel as though they're not being noticed or taken, mm-hmm. given enough respect. And I think that's where the West Australians and the Queenslanders um, get on relatively well because there is that sense of us versus them. You know, our states are, are not dissimilar in, in geography and, and, and landscape, etc. So I think um, it, is a, you know, it is a very unique state and it throws up very unique characters. And if you're in the business of you know, journalism or reporting or capturing some of that spirit, well, you know, you, there's, plenty of, there's plenty to work with over here. So as a master storyteller yourself, Tony, I think, can I ask you, how do you find these stories? How, what makes your antenna prick up that there is something more to this? Well, I think it's just a natural, you know, if you're a naturally inquisitive person, they're not that hard to find. And it's not just the stories that, you know, news stories that you find just by, you know, digging away or somebody sending you something. Um, it's the ability, I think, just to be able to walk into a pub in an outback town and get talking to the local, you know, barmaid who says, oh, you know, you should talk to, you know, there's a, there's a local character around here called Nance Haxton and she, you know, <laughs> you know she's a, she does this or she does that. And, I mean, that's just the way. Uh, and, again, I think it just comes naturally to naturally inquisitive people. But that's just the way you, you, you can tap into all these wonderful things um, that are around you and all these wonderful stories that are around you. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, and I still don't know whether they do it, but SBS did, had this fantastic line about six billion stories and counting. And it was, it was, it just really resonated with me because, and, and, and I'm trying, always trying to remember who told me, it might have been my old man, I can't remember, but it was somebody a long, long time ago said, everybody's got a story, you know? Whether it's the person you're sitting next to in a bus, whether it's, you know, the, the, the person who's driving a tractor in the back blocks of, um, you know, the wheat belt, everybody's got a story. Nobody has a bland, dull life. Um, you know, everybody's either been through, you know, some sort of heartache or a tragedy or a triumph. You know, they've, they've, they've had their ups and downs. And some of them are far more interesting than the others. But as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an adage, you can't be. Everybody's got a story. You're it's just, just finding that hook to, to tell it. And, and, and getting it out of them. I mean, that's also mm. a talent as well, I think, is just being able to get, extract information out of people. And I think that mm. comes with being you know, open and genuine with people. You, I was going to ask you that. Do you think that it's as simple as that, that that's the key? Because I think of a lot of the stories that you've done in the outback with Indigenous communities, so much of it's about establishing trust and how do you do that when you're plonked in a place and told to go and find a story? Well, I think it, if you're genuine, people will pick that stuff up. It's hard to try and be somebody else, but it's very easy to be yourself. And I think if you just be yourself, um, people are either going to say, 
you know, okay, I'm happy to talk to you, or no, go and get lost. Well, that's fine, and that's their right to say that. Um, but if I could give any advice to young reporters or young writers of that in that sort of area and that space, just be yourself, and people either warm to you or they won't. Would you like more people to be going out to do stories from Indigenous areas of Australia? Oh, yeah. And it's I, such a passion of yours. Yeah, well, it's not just Indigenous. I think it's anybody who doesn't have a voice. And I think that's such an important role that the journalist um, plays. Um, we're probably doing less of it now because, mm-hmm. you know, this stuff costs money. And, you know, to get up to the Kimberley or get up to Pilbara or, you know, just to jump in a car or jump in a plane. Particularly in WA, it's massive. Yeah, and it's, you know, it is a lot of money and it it is, and it does cost. But, um, and I think we've got to be really careful of being, to making sure that the people who run these news organisations, they've got to be really careful um, that they don't lose that sense of um, duty when it comes to giving a voice to people uh, in remote uh, and regional areas of Australia because it is a very, very big country and we need to make sure that um, it's not just the voices of Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or even Perth. It's the voices of, um, you know, the Kimberley, um, you know, or outback Queensland or Northern Territory are just as important as those who live in the big cities. So, and that they're not forgotten. And they're not forgotten. Um, and not only that, they're... Quite often, they're far more rich. Mm-hmm. They're so much richer. Um, they're richer in um, history and they're richer in spirit. I find, you know, and mm-hmm. you can always tell almost immediately when you um, meet somebody and they start talking to you. Um, just um, the the sense of Australianness about them, and I think we've got to be really careful not to lose that sense. And it sounds romantic but we've got to be really careful not to lose that sense of being still being romantic about things um, without it turning into sort of jingoism or cliches but it's important to tell those stories to keep them alive yeah, well it's, it's, yeah. and, and and particularly in in regional and remote australia this they they make up such an important part of uh, the australian story and we've got to really make sure that we tell them regardless of the costs and the price uh, on you know an airfare um, because they are so pivotal to the you know to the uh, to the evolving Australian uh, story. And Tony, I think of uh, it's been a, an interesting year with the pressures on journalists. I think in the past six months, just coming to the to the recent raids six months ago from the AFP and on ABC and News Limited. What did you make of all that, and what's come from that, and the pressures on press freedom since? Well, I think there's always going to be a natural um, clash between the media and government. That's just the way things work. What I was slightly surprised about was that the media was surprised that they got raided. The reality is if you've got documents, classified documents that have come from the Defence Department and the authorities think that they're at your house, well, they're going to raid your house. And I must admit, I was always—I was sort of having a bit of a chuckle to myself, thinking, "Well, why, why are journalists shocked that nothing happened? Of course, something's going to happen." So, since my little episode, which is literally 30 years ago, yes, 30 years ago today—that's why I'm interested to hear your perspective been, on this. Well, there's been a—you know—and it's, we've been talking. I would love a dollar for every, you know, law reform commission report or 
committee finding um, that you've been mentioned in. Well, I've found quite a few even well, in but, my research. Yeah, but yeah. The, the, I th and I think <laughs> the fundamental issue is that there's always going to be friction between what journalists do and what governments do. Can that be healthy, or how can that be? I think it's very preserved. I think yeah. it's very healthy, yeah. and I think that's the way it should be, of yeah. course. But I've still yet to find any or been told or read any practical solution to what is always going to be a, a strong friction between the two bodies. Yes. And if I can mention, of course, what you were referring to for the people who may not be familiar with it, but in 1989, you were the, the first Australian journalist to serve a prison term for refusing to reveal your sources. That, that must have been an incredible time. What a price to pay for your ethical principles. Well, it was, it was all a bit weird, to be honest. And um, it was my little 15 minutes of fame, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I obviously watch what's going on in this space in the industry as the years roll on and there's been numerous you know instances where journalists have been you know threatened with jail and heavily fined and and the right to know is I think it's a fantastic campaign and it I think it will uh, resonate with people who have uh, a sense that how important journalism is to you know the the, the role of, uh, of all democracy itself mm. you know it's a pivotal part in in our job and what we and how we go about doing it, I'm just really intrigued to see what practical solutions somebody's going to come up with to basically, you know, so all parties re, you know re retreat to their corner and everyone's happy because if they come up with it, I'll be absolutely stunned. <laughs> what would be some advice that you would well, give, Tony, from and, your and, perspective? And, I'm not, and, I, and, and I don't mean to be and I don't mean to be critical, but mm. it is such a complex area yeah. and it falls in so many different areas about. You know, um, journalists being above the law, which mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they don't expect to be mm -hmm. above the law. But it also, does it come down to a politician deciding, you know, who who raids a journalist's office? I mean, I, d I don't think the Commissioner of Police would be too happy if, you know, the mm -hmm. Attorney-General says, well, I don't want to raid Nance Axon's house because, yes, you know... For whatever reason, there are so many complexities to it. Would legislation of some form help? The, the, the First Amendment in yes, the US, of I course, is brought up. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> that, that is for so even from your personal perspective and thirty years of reflection, well, we're still not much closer. No, well, I, well, I, I hope we are. And it's far smarter, brighter minds than mine to <laughs> to come to a solution. And I hope there is one. But we've been having this discussion. Mm. For a very almost for as long as my career, and we don't seem to be any closer to a solution to the problem. There has been um, some comments, particularly in this series, from journalists who are worried about whistleblowers. Particularly, I wonder if that's part of the solution. If there were better protections for whistleblowers, because there's concerns raised that a lot of this raids was a publicity exercise to kind of warn whistleblowers away from telling journalists their story. Oh, look, and, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a great idea. But again, the complexities of being able to extract a certain person within an organisation, within a government body and saying, OK, we're going to protect you, but we're not going to protect the person sitting next to you. I mean, there are, there are myriad complexities to it. And as I say, I, I've got no idea how they're going to sort it out. But what I do agree with wholeheartedly is that the campaign, the Right to Know campaign, is long overdue. And, and, I, and I hope it really resonates in the general public 
who start to really focus. I mean, they've got their own sort of battles and um, issues to deal with. Um, hip pocket, you know, paying bills, getting on with their lives, putting their kids through school. But I think, oh, well, I hope that they take a little bit of time to understand just how important the campaign is and what it means to them in the broader, bigger sense. Would you hope that journalists would make the same decision if they were put in that same difficult place that you were 30 years ago? Oh, look, I suspect most journalists probably would. Um, I suspect they would. You know, it's always up to the up to the individual. I suspect they probably would, but, you know, every, all the circumstances would be completely different. Um, in my circumstance, it was a case of really if I... Um, revealed a source, I would have thought my career would have been over. And I think it also goes against that great Australian tradition of, you know, not dobbing in a mate or not dobbing, full stop. Whether it's a mate or not, you just, you know, again, it's sort of one of those things that sort of tears at the heart of the Australian character, doesn't it? But, you know, each their own. People have to make... Well, let's hope journalists don't have to make those decisions um, very often. How would you explain it to people in the public who are cynical about journalists? We hear about the poor view that they have of journalists a lot. Why is it important that journalists have some rights to press freedom these days? Well, they've got to because, you know, because their role and their job is very important. Um, without a free press, um, you... Uh, the you know the average Australian doesn't get a chance to understand and be informed about issues that really matter to them. They may not know that uh, these issues matter to them, but in a broader uh, sense, a healthy democracy democracy only thrives uh, on a healthy media. I wonder if sometimes Australians take it for granted a little bit, and how precarious some of those that balance is. They certainly do. Uh, not through any fault of their own, but uh, I think through the general sense that, you know, we're a very lucky country. We're a sort of, you know, fat, rich country, Western country. And I think we're not used to really thinking about some of these bigger issues that affect so many other countries, uh, less luckier countries than ours, uh, on a daily basis. Um, I think they would, Australians would focus much more on this issue if they were you know, living in Russia or... The Philippines. Uh, the Philippines, or, you know, tick, name a hundred other countries. Mm. So I think that's why it's a good campaign, because it will inform Australians about what, how important it is to have a, a healthy, robust media. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the Journo Project today. Is there anything else that perhaps I haven't covered and in your illustrious career? Really appreciate getting your perspective. Oh, thank you, Nance. No, I think that's that's nothing else jumps to mind. <laughs> but look, I appreciate you coming over into the West. It's great to see that um, uh, we're not forgotten over here. There's some fantastic uh, journal journos, you know, working over here. Um, we've been doing some well, Seven West Media and Channel Nine, a whole range, ABC in particular. There's a whole range of really good uh, young journos coming up through the ranks. Uh, I'm seeing them from the other side now and um, they would have left me for dead back in the day that's for sure so um, it's great you've come across and put a bit of focus on, on the Wild West. Thank you Tony, really appreciate it. Good on you Nance. That was Tony Barris speaking to me in Parliament House in Perth for the Journo Project. 
Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.